on KGO 810. Good evening, I'm Pat Thurston. I suppose I have to do better follow-up when, I, when I'm inviting guests on. I am delighted. Yesterday we began a conversation on, on alcoholism. And we did this in light of alcoholism uh, becoming a, a greater focus in the story of Lynn Spaulding, who died in the stairwell at San Francisco General. We all know that story. But since her autopsy and it was revealed that she was a, an alcoholic, a, a chronic alcoholic, a bad alcoholic, um, alcoholism has become a, a matter of discussion. And also, you know, it's out there. It's out there in the popular culture right now. I, I mentioned yesterday that um, the Stephen King book, the new Stephen King book, which is the sequel to The Shining, spends a great deal of time talking about Danny, the little boy now grown up, who became an alcoholic, uh, the fighting that he has with his demons that way, and his recovery. Uh, it's not the only book I've read recently that focuses on recovery and alcoholism. But I know so little about it. I know that in San Francisco, alcoholism has been increasing, which I find concerning. But I wanted some questions answered. And so Dr. David Kahn is joining us. He is an addiction psychiatrist. And he's got a few minutes that he can join with us on the air to answer some basic questions. Uh, Dr. Kahn, thanks so much for being with us this evening. Uh, thank you for the invitation. So alcoholism, uh, what is it exactly? Alcoholism is a disease, and um, the way that I think about it as an addiction psychiatrist, I think of it as a chronic illness, much like diabetes, hypertension, or asthma. It's a disease where people uh, drink too much alcohol, and they uh, have consequences as a result, and they have difficulty stopping, certainly, and that's what makes it a disease. Um, the real short of it is the three Cs, a loss of control, compulsive use, and consequences attached to the use. Hmm. Okay, so if there's somebody who is, I mean, really bad, and have they have to go through um, a, a de- do most people who are alcoholics when they enter recovery or when they're ready to not be alcoholics anymore, do they have to detox? Um, most alcoholics don't have to go through uh, medically assisted detoxification um, when they. Uh, decide to stop drinking, they just stop drinking, and they generally do fine with it. There are some people who do need uh, medical detoxification, as in being seen in the hospital or rehabilitation center, and have a physician supervise their detoxification regimen. And if they're going through that kind of detox, is it detox, excuse me, the withdrawal from alcohol, is it common that they might suffer hallucinations or uh, deliria? I don't, I don't um, know what the difference is. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So when people, um, people who suffer from alcoholism who are drinking typically large quantities, and by large quantities, um, you know, it depends on the person because everybody metabolizes alcohol differently. Right. But what can happen is that when people stop abruptly, as in they don't sort of gradually cut down or weed themselves off, uh, they can have problems, which kind of looks like, um, which kind of looks a bit like, your, your system is going hyper. Your blood, pre- your blood pressure shoots up. Your heart rate goes up. Uh, and in worst-case scenarios, people can actually suffer a seizure or delirium treatments. Mm. And typically, we don't see that until 24 to 72 hours after somebody has had their last drink. If there were, hypothetically, 
a case where a person were admitted to the hospital on something unrelated to their um, alcoholism, but it became apparent in the hospital that this was a person who was severely alcoholic, and they were um, uh, confused, uh, um, possibly suffering from delirium. Would would they be put under lock and key? Would they be kept there to detox? Um, generally speaking, not, unless they've got other reasons to be uh, involuntarily held. Um, it, it, the issue is that, it, and it's an unfortunately all too common occurrence in hospitals, in that addiction as an illness is something that kind of goes underground. It's shameful. People feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. And I think physicians as a whole are generally pretty poorly trained in identifying addiction, alcoholism, and the put, play, figuring out who's at risk for alcoholism. And so if somebody actually were to go into severe um, severe alcohol withdrawal, such as having a seizure or delirium treatment, I don't think that they would be held exactly. They just wouldn't be in any shape to leave, and then they would be hospitalized. They're in the hospital, and then they would be treated. And and watched so that they couldn't hurt themselves? Um, it's not so much that they couldn't hurt themselves. It's that when somebody goes and moves into the severe stages of alcohol withdrawal, mm-hmm. they're just not capable of taking care of themselves. They're confused. Their blood pressure and pulse are up. Um, they can be shaky, um, and you're not capable of really uh, figuratively and literally putting one foot in front of the other. So you want to be careful to monitor them all the time. Absolutely. <sighs> tell me about 12-step programs. Uh, and, and I'll tell you that my um, I have no experience with this at all. The, the closest I've ever come was once I was drinking a club soda at a wedding reception and somebody asked me if I was a friend of Bob. I had no clue what they were talking about. And I started naming off every Bob I knew. And then I found out that that was like a greeting for AA. But I've, yeah. I have read a lot of things lately. And I've always believed that it was trading one compulsion for another that that um if you're if you're addicted to a substance and then you move over to a 12 step program that those 12 step programs are addictions too that they're well, so rigid yeah. but i but i think they're a better addiction but am i being too harsh um well i wouldn't call 12 step programs an addiction because when it comes to addiction the ultimate uh the final common pathway of any addiction is that there's some consequence that comes as a result of it, right, whether it yeah. be alcohol, cocaine, sex, or something like that. Um, somebody is suffering and their relationships are impaired. Um, 12-step programs are one of the most interesting things out there. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I practice a medical model of treatment, but I love 12 steps. Uh, the reasons are that for my patients, 12 steps are available when I'm not. Yeah. Um, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of 12-step meetings within the city of San Francisco itself, yeah. and um, they're kind of available everywhere. And, and at all what, times, every day. Yes, at all, at all hours, really. Yeah. And what happens is that 12-step, um, uh, a good 12-step program identifies one of the big defects that, as physicians, we're not very good at managing, which is a lack of spirituality, a lack of connection. Mm. Uh, We can talk about how to keep somebody from not drinking, how to manage their detox, but ultimately what, as physicians, we're generally not good at is rebuilding the spiritual aspect or the spiritual defect that comes as a result of addiction. Um, What's also interesting about 12 steps, if you look at the 12 steps themselves, it starts with an admission of... um, of uh, helplessness, uh, powerlessness, and unmanageability. I hate that. But, 
That's yeah. the thing but I object to the most strenuously. Can you stay for a few more minutes? I need to take a break, and I know you got to run. I know you got the kids in tow. Can you can you stay just a few more minutes? Sure, I can. All right, terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. David Kahn is my guest, and we will come back and discuss uh, why I don't like the idea of being powerless and why he thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> according to the 12-step programs. So uh, I'm Pat Thurston. We're talking about alcoholism. My guest, Dr. David Kahn, he's an addiction psychiatrist. My guest is Dr. David Kahn. He's an addiction psychiatrist, and uh, we are talking about alcoholism. Um, And, uh, David, we've been talking about um, 12-step programs. And you like the 12-step programs. You you, you treat people medically. Um, I want to talk with you. There are two things in my mind. I don't want to forget either one of them. One of them, you said one of the benefits of 12-step programs was because it dealt with the spiritual. It helped bring people back to the spiritual. Why can't you as a psychiatrist do that? Um, it's a good question, but honestly, as physicians, we're not experts in spirituality. Mm-hmm. We don't have the training. We don't have the experience. And even though we try to recreate something that happens in 12-step in our groups, like, yeah. for example, group therapy is something that we do a lot of, The um, what happens in group therapy is that people are asked to sit in, sit in a circle, you know, kind of like AA meetings. But what's very dangerous about group therapy is that people can talk to each other. Uh, it doesn't make sense, but in an AA meeting, when somebody shares their experience, it's their experience, and that doesn't get doesn't get questioned. What's really mm-hmm. interesting about twelve step meetings is that it is actually a very safe place to be, and you could be drunk at a twelve step meeting, and you really can't be drunk at one of my uh, therapy appointments. Um, I guess you could, but at the same time, uh, and so <laughs> what happens is if you think about the change process in twelve step, uh, people sit in a room with people similarly situated, a bunch of other drunks. And um, through that, they start to find recovery, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think the main way that people change when it comes to addiction is that they're able to identify with other people who suffer from the same illness. And through that identification process, they can sort of see a way out of their hole. Yeah. I mean, that's what in just the reading that I've done, that's kind of what I've come to is it's a very, it's a closed group. Because they only they know what it is to be going through this, what it feels like and how they were able to overcome it. They understand the lies. They talk about, you know, how the masters that they are at, at telling lies to protect their addiction. And yeah. they call each other on it because they've done it themselves. And that's something I'm assuming you've not done. You You are not an alcoholic, are you? No, I'm not in recovery myself. Of course, I, I have no support. business asking you that, and so I, I apologize oh, for doing that. Uh, my but, patients ask me all the time. Oh, do they? <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing, David. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think as a, you know, if some people have this mind that psychiatrists are supposed to be uh, blank slates. I'm hardly that. Uh, if somebody asks me, and they have a right to know, I don't see any problem in telling them. So tell me about this um the problem with the 12 steps that the the one thing that I would stick on, and again, I haven't been through it, but um, is powerlessness. Isn't that yeah. a dangerous thing to tell yourself you're powerless against your addiction? 
Well, if you take the conclusion that powerlessness leads you to not do anything, then obviously it is a dangerous thing. And certainly many people rebel against the 12-step programs because of this whole the aspect of God as well as powerlessness. Right. Um, but you have to look at the 12 steps as a whole. And what's really interesting to me as a psychiatrist, you look at the 12-step, um, the first step, which is admitting powerlessness and unmanageability, and what, an, what a fascinating concept. You know, you start with, let's get to the business right away. And by admitting powerlessness and unmanageability, people are starting to identify that, yeah, indeed, I have a problem. But also, look at, the, as you go through the steps, what you see is the first three steps are steps that you can kind of do on your own. You don't really need somebody else to do it. And then steps four and five, um, where you take a fearless and searching moral inventory, that's step four and step five, you actually talk to somebody else about that. Yeah. You move from self to other, which is, I think, one of the fundamental defects that we see in addiction is that it's, um, you know, in psychiatry, we used to think of addiction as a form of pathological narcissism. Me, 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 me. Right. I can do this all myself. I just need enough to drink, enough to snort, enough to inject. Mm. And what the 12 steps do is they take you from a position of, all about me to the 12th step where we have had a spiritual awakening and we spread that message to other people. And so with addiction, as with any mental illness, I think the biggest problem is that people cannot relate to other people as a result of depression, as a result of hearing voices and schizophrenia, as a result of being fearful and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think the problem with addiction is that you get wrapped up in using the substance and chasing the substance that it impairs your ability to relate to other people. And in AA, you kind of have a roadmap how to move from yourself to relating back to other people. Is it, are people generally who become alcoholics or who become addicted to other drugs, are those individuals usually suffering from some something else mentally? Or could it be anywhere? Like, you know, the, the kids that you drink with in college, everybody yeah. overdrinks in college. But most people, sure. they grow up, they go on, they have families, they have lives, they have jobs, and they may be casual drinkers, but they're not alcoholics. But there are some who are. What differentiates who's going to be and who's not going to be? Well, what's interesting about addiction that is, is that it doesn't respect socioeconomic status. It doesn't represent. It doesn't respect class. It doesn't respect really anything. Does it and respect we, heredity? Uh, that's the one thing that alcohol salutes. Uh, one <laughs> of the things that we know about alcoholism, interestingly enough, is that about sixty percent of the variance, sixty percent of what predicts your, whether you're going to become alcoholic or not, yeah. is family history. Mm. And um, if you have a family history of alcoholism, alcoholism, especially in first degree relatives like your mother or your father. A sibling, your chance of alcoholism significantly increases. Uh, the reason we know this is that we did a, um, there's a study done by uh, Dr. Shuckett in San Diego, and he gambled his entire research career on a clinical finding, which was that the people who were the, had the wooden legs that could drink and not get drunk were the ones likely to become alcoholics because that's what he saw from all his patients in treatment. And um, what he did is he said, I think that you're at risk. And he took the children, the adolescents of alcoholics, and suggested you're at risk for alcoholism. I strongly urge that you don't do this, but I want to study you. And he studied them for 40 years, 4-0. And what he found is many of them became alcoholic despite him thinking and telling them you're at risk for alcoholism. Mm. And what he's demonstrated is that there's a number of genetics that actually predict whether somebody's going to become alcoholic or not. 
And the genetics are a little bit complicated. It's not like you know, blue eyes, brown eyes, or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of genes that encode things like impulsivity, lack of fear, uh, sensation-seeking. And usually the most severely alcoholic have a combination of any of 22 different genes. Wow that sort of predict whether they'll become alcoholic or not. Oh, wow. So this, so it's not. So they've, they've made the determination that it actually is genetic. It's not simply that you live with an alcoholic. It's easier to become an alcoholic because that's what you learn to do. Right. Um, well, you know, like I said, 60% is genetic, but what are, where's the other 40%? Yeah. We know that other things predict alcoholism. For example, a history of trauma. So if somebody's been traumatized, I work with a lot of veterans. They've been traumatized in war, and even though they had no family history or pre-existing alcoholism, they become alcoholic after they come back from the from the current conflicts. Um, so it's in part genetic, but it's also in part environment as well. I mean, simply put, you can't become alcoholic without having alcohol around in some way, shape, or form. Do you buy into the idea that if you are an alcoholic or if you're a, an addict of other drugs, that you always are? I mean, they they only say recovery, they say sobriety, but you know, once an alcoholic, you're considered an alcoholic forever, right? Well, that go that depends on. Uh, I personally think that may be true, or at least somebody's at risk for relapse and for having problems as a result of their illness, but it's in the same way as that somebody who has high blood pressure is at risk for having high blood pressure in the future. You can exercise, you can diet, you can take your medications and right. get your blood pressure under control. Right. But if you go out, eat a lot of salt, don't exercise, yeah. and so on and so forth, you have run a risk of having it come back. And it goes right back to that whole disease thing that you were talking about because, you know, for me, it's kind of hard to accept that it's a disease, but the way that you characterize it you know, and, and that idea of relapse, it all makes sense. It sounds exactly like a disease. Well, that, that's that's the problem with normies like us. We don't get it. <laughs> we, we don't understand what it means to drink to oblivion, and with every drink, you feel better. Yeah, thank God. And as a, as a physician, you know, I've treated lots of people with diseases that I've never had myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, for even for the people who are the most severely ill, um Perhaps it's my job to just bear witness, but at the same time, it's important to just be there. And I have lots of patients who relapse again and again. At the same time, what I know is that the number one predictor of long-term sobriety is the number of past treatment failures, the number of times you've gone to AA and didn't like it, the number of times you've gone into treatment and it didn't work. And so for me as a physician, if somebody comes in and I say, you're drinking too much, cut it out, and they stop, Well, they're not alcoholic. They're a problem drinker. They're at risk. But at the same time, they're not alcoholic versus the alcoholic patient is the one who comes in again and again and again. And we have to keep going at it until we figure out what works. Well, um, Dr. David Kahn, thank you. Thank you for being with us. Go spend time with your kids. Uh, It has been illuminating. And I hope you join me on the program again. It's been really nice. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You betcha. Dr. David Kahn, he's an addiction psychiatrist. Let's talk Chris Christie, shall we? So, uh, 
uh, I think that you know about Bridgegate, uh, I assume. You know, most of the people who listen to this show, you're pretty familiar with what's going on in the news. So you probably know about Bridgegate in a nutshell. Uh, Chris Christie, Chris Christie's staff, it has not been directly linked to Chris Christie yet, uh, but Chris Christie's high-level staffers uh, were involved in this decision to shut down the George Washington Bridge, the busiest bridge in the world, for uh, four days in uh, September. And (laughs) for no good reason, uh, the person who did it was the uh, head of the Bridge Authority in New Jersey, who was appointed by Christie. And so it was a political favor, and it was apparently to punish the mayor of Fort Lee, uh, whose community was severely impacted by the bridge closer closure. Now, there is some speculation that it actually was p- political retaliation against the Democratic senator who stood against his Supreme Court decisions, but it is some sort of political retaliation. And what happened here was thoroughly foul and disgusting, punishing the people who had nothing to do with any of this so that the people would turn against the mayor who didn't support him or that they would turn against this Democratic senator. It was political retaliation. Christie says he had no clue. I think that's absolute balderdash. He is probably enough removed to give himself plausible deniability. But of course he knew. Of course he green-lighted it. And based on what we've seen of the emails, there are documents that are coming out. There are still documents that haven't been released. But there are, I guess, a thousand or so documents that have already been released now. And according to those documents, according to the emails, this was a plan that had already been put in place. It was just waiting for the go-ahead. Because when... His, what was she, chief of staff? When she sent the memo that says time for a traffic jam in Fort Lee, uh, there was no response that said, well, what do you mean traffic jam? What are you talking about? What are we looking for? What do you want? Why? What, blah, blah, blah. None of that. The response was, got it. <laughs> what does that tell you? That tells you that this was plotted. This was planned in advance. And all she was doing was sending the memo that says, it's time. So I'd like you to share your thoughts on Chris Christie and whether or not he will survive this to become the GOP presidential candidate because he was the darling. He was the darling. There were a lot of people, political watchers, who were saying that he could never become the GOP frontrunner. But there were others who said, oh, yes, he can, because the American public was hungry for somebody in the GOP who didn't look like a nutbag, for somebody in the GOP who wasn't somebody who was on the fringe, who wasn't a Rand Paul, who wasn't a Michelle Bachman, who wasn't a birther, somebody who seemed to have some sense about him is somebody who appeared to be able to reach across the aisle. Well, in this case, he sure did reach, didn't he? Uh, but they were saying that he could become a frontrunner because of those individuals, because the kooks would knock each other out, and Christie might just be the last person standing. But what about now? Can he? Could he? Ever since this thing happened, ever since this thing broke this past week, uh, reporters are combing through records looking for any hint of scandal or belligerence or bullying or uh, what did they refer to it here? Uh, his fiercely partisan bestowing of patronage and punishment. So it goes both ways. That because he's so partisan, because he expects these favors to be granted to him, because he expects support, and anybody who goes against him will be punished. But anybody who supports him could be rewarded. You know, I played the theme to The Sopranos at the beginning. I played that for two reasons. Because it's New Jersey, but also because it's The Sopranos. And it reeks of that. 
It reeks of it. Now, I got to wonder, though, is political retaliation of the sort that I think Chris Christie has been involved in here, is it really disdained? Because it seems to me like we've been going through a period of political retaliation, ugly political retaliation for a while now. I mean, there's no revolt. There's no wall-to-wall coverage. There's no uh, reporters going through all the emails of the Republican obstructionism against President Obama's proposals. I mean, (laughs) what is that other than retaliation for his presidential victory? There's never been less cooperation in the House of Representatives with everything proposed by the president perceived as something to oppose, even if the proposal was actually a GOP idea. And just like those commuters in in, uh, New Jersey and in New York, we're all the victims of that political retaliation. Every one of us are. It's retaliatory. And it's ugly. 8080810 is the telephone number. Do you see any difference between Christie's Bridgegate and the actions of the Republican Congress? Do you think Chris Christie can survive this? I mean, I know we have short memories. So maybe Chris Christie can get past this. Maybe he will be the GOP front runner. 8080810 is the telephone number. Let's go to Joanna in Concord. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Pat. You know, the difference is whether or not there is plausible deniability, even with the Iraq war, Bush and Cheney could argue. Well, the intelligence was wrong. We really thought something, you know, that they had weapons of mass destruction. With these emails, it gives us a different story. A new theory came up this morning. There's a new project, a big redevelopment project that they're working on in Fort Lee. Those access lanes to the bridge are not just go gateway to the bridge. They are like special reserved express access for those people there, and they are a critical part of that project being funded. Oh, no. And some people from New Jersey who are, you know, involved there, uh, work there, live there, and Steve Karnacki over on MSNBC this morning, he had them on, they think it might be tied to that. We're talking about a lot of money wow. and how the projects are doled out in New Jersey, right. kind of like in The Soprano. Kind of like, huh? Yeah. I mean, it really is. This is just, it reeks of this kind of bullying. Well, and I thought it was hysterical that he well, said Pat, he wasn't a bully. Pat, I grew up in New Jersey. And wow. let me tell you, stuff used to happen all the time where the mob was involved. For example, we'd read that someone was beat to death with his golf clubs or his kneecaps were broken. Mm. And, you know, everybody just looked the other way. We never said it was the mob. We knew it was the mob. Sure. But stuff goes on there all the time. That's just the way it is. But if you mess with people's traffic, they're going to be really angry. Yeah. And that's, that's the big thing in New Jersey, that he did that. This is not going to be let go. We're going to get to the bottom of it. And I think I think that's going to be tied to him. Yeah, well, and, and it may dash his uh, his hopes to be the uh, Republican candidate for uh, president in the next election. And I do think that he had those hopes. He had those ambitions. Remember, he even went on a diet. We'll be back. 808-0810 is the telephone number. That's 80-80-810. I'm Pat Thurston on KGO. <laughs> Uh, let's go to the phones. We're talking about Chris Christie and uh, somebody who I know from New Jersey. No, it's not Bruce Springsteen. Don't get so excited. But it's a close second. It's David Weintraub. Hi, David. Hi, Pat. Hey, congratulations on your new show. 
Thank you very much. I am so excited. I'm so, I'm just so excited. It was a great decision, and I'm delighted that you got your own program now. I really I appreciate and that. And it's on. We we should tell people they can listen to you on uh, what Friday night and Saturday night, right? At midnight. Yep. Starting at midnight both times, but you're not on tonight because no. you were on the two previous days. Okay. Just, just tonight when the people are heavily drinking. All right. So tell me all about Chris Christie and why you think oh. he should be president. <laughs> yeah, I've always felt I've always felt that way from the yeah. day I saw it. it was, I don't, you know, listen, I don't get as political about things. You know, as certain people, you know, you'll delve into that stuff. But you know, the guy was placed into New Jersey. He was placed into position as a state attorney general, and all these things that started happening in his favor and, and blah blah. And then I thought to myself the other day uh, when I started thinking about the story. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't get brought up, but it just seems so obvious to me that. This guy was on his way to being you know, quite possibly the presidential nomination, even though I right. find him unelectable just because of his looks alone and the way he treats people. But for the time being, right. the media was going to like pretend that this guy Yeah, was. don't forget that they elected Jesse Ventura in Minnesota, okay? Yes, yeah. they did, who, who also is considering running for president, which yeah. would be wonderful. Yeah, well, he um, and Donald Trump can uh, be on the same yeah. ticket. <laughs> yeah, so, and I thought to myself, Okay, so let's just imagine that you're two people and you're really high up and you work for Chris Christie. Yeah. And you know that this guy could possibly be president. Yeah. Would you possibly do something so stupid to jeopardize his career and yours without him knowing about it? Not only that, he's like a mafia guy. And would you really want to do anything to cross this guy? Would you really want to do anything that big without getting him saying that it's okay? No, I, I, I agree. But I just think to myself, what kind of people who know, like if you know that you are in the perfect position for your career right. to find yourself in an even more, even a better position in yeah. two more years, right. why would someone act outside the system right. and do something so stupid to, to jeopardize their own career and his? That is political and that is professional suicide. And if you just think about it from that perspective, then you have to think nobody would do that. No nobody rational, would do that. Nobody would do nobody that. Nobody would do that. No. That's why you know. That's why you know he had everything to do with it. Well, you and know what they're saying now. They're saying that if they find evidence that he did know about this because he's lied about it at this point, they would move forward with an impeachment. Yeah, for sure. And why wouldn't they? You know, and, and, and why wouldn't they not? And this guy just felt that he's above the law. Listen, when you have a plus sixty-five percent approval rating in a state that is arguably. Uh, at times, the most democratic state in the country. You it's know, so just weird. a couple of years ago, when Forzine, who's an idiot in his own right, was yeah. governor, you, know, you had you know a democratic governor, two senators, the majority of House representatives, the state legislator, everything. Yeah. And then this guy can all of a sudden get sixty to sixty-five percent approval ratings right. in a state like that. I mean, he had to feel untouchable. Well, and, and why do you think that is? Why do you think he was able to get that kind of approval rating? I tend to think it's because. Um, people really were hungry for somebody who would go against the Tea Party uh, tide, you know. And then yes, they saw him with uh, embracing Obama, and so they thought that this was a guy who was much more moderate. But I don't think I, he really is. He's not moderate at all, uh, but he just kind of – what I actually have always felt about him is he's not moderate, he's not conservative, he's not liberal – He's whatever the moment presents itself. Uh, and he, he's a guy who's in, completely concerned about self. 
Right. I would ever present. I don't think a guy who grows up where he grows up in Livingston, New Jersey, which is a you know pretty liberal place, very wealthy place, and then lives in Summit, which is another very wealthy place. I don't think that you grow up in, in this type of place and find yourself extremely one way or extremely the other. It's not that type of place. Jersey's right. just not that way. So whatever presented itself as you know opportunistic, that's what he is. Yeah. So when President Obama's walking down the beach with him, that's what he is. Right. So. He right. was going to find whatever road plank he could to be the other thing, because he's a contrarian by nature. So at the end of the day, he did it. Yeah. Well, did you admire the the way that he talks to people, his bullying thing? No, I think it's awful. Yeah, I think good. it's awful. Good. I think it's awful that he went to the state university, my alma mater. He went to Rutgers, and a woman this past football season, a teacher, approached him and asked him a question, Yeah. and he was with his wife. And you can find this online. I think someone even posted it to the KGO uh, Facebook page. He and his wife berated this woman, and she started crying. Or she was just frightened. And I just thought to myself, who would do that? Right. That became his thing. His thing was, I'm the guy who shouts people down. Right. Don't and talk calls to them idiots. Way. And, and yeah. he just got so full of himself yeah. that I think that he felt that I can get away with whatever I want. Yeah. Well, you and know it, what? He's got a career for him in talk radio, I think. Oh, he absolutely. <laughs> listen, when, when this goes downhill, if Elliot Spitzer can find himself on CNN, Chris Christie can easily find himself. And Elliot him. Spitzer, here's my hero, and he's caught now sucking some woman's toes in a hot tub in front of these children. What is wrong with that guy? Hey, each his own. But MSNBC, God. they love Chris Christie. Even Mika Brzezinski was, you know, you know, basically bashing right. Obama in support of Christie. So yeah. he'll find himself with a lot of money and a lot of power in some other way. But he got, you know, he got he got too full of himself, right. and now he's paying the price. Yeah. Well, and I, and I hope he does. I hope he pays the entire price. Although I don't know who I want to be the the uh, Republican nominee. Thanks, David. Good to talk with you, and uh, good luck on your show. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Because I would like to think that we could have uh, – oh, wait a minute. Here's an email. I want to read this and see. Christie's people – this is from uh, Rich who says, Christie's people can send a million documents. It won't change anybody's mind either way. But given Christie being almost a self-proclaimed bully, who on his staff would have the balls to cross him this way? Hmm? And if they convene a grand jury, that weasel that took the fifth might start singing. Well, you know, you you may be absolutely right. But coming back to the, the question that I was going to pose, here – it would be really nice to feel like when you go into an election that there are actually choices that are put before us. You know, I hate the idea that this is a country of how many people in this country? 300 million, 300, it's more than 300 million people. And that we end up having two people that we choose from. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. And those are the only people we really have any chance of electing to the highest uh, position in the world. You know, the most powerful position in the world. Uh, so at least I'd like to think that there are two choices. I'd like to think that there's a a person that I don't have to pay a pen, excuse me, pay attention to the party per se. That I can look at a person and say that's the person with integrity. That's the person who thinks most like me. That's the person I want to elect. I don't think there's ever been a Republican running for office where I have felt that way. Not in my lifetime, anyway. And I'd like to think that that there are some choices out there that I could actually look at a Republican candidate and think, well, you know, if he gets elected, it wouldn't be so bad. And that hasn't happened. Oh, it has happened in my lifetime. But it hasn't happened recently, I'll tell you what. All right, it's time for us to check in with uh, Carell. His show is coming up next. Carell, are you with me? Well, I was pouring my Pete's Amber Oolong, but yes, I'm here. <laughs> 
amber oolong. That's tea, right? Yes. This is, oh, this is not course. a beer. This is not I'm bubbly. A, I'm a civilized human being, darling. I drink tea. Can I tell you, since I just talked with David Weintraub, let me just go into a conversation with you. Yelp. I, I didn't hear your conversation on this, but I think it's absolutely terrific that the court has decided that uh, the people, especially when there's an indication that it's fake, that they have to reveal. Well, I, I would say that when it is a I would say that in the case. And yes, I agree with the court. And I would say that when it is particularly a business and this can adversely affect your product in some way. Yeah. You have a right to know who's making those comments and why. Or a person who's being slandered in some capacity. Oh, honey, now, now, please. Now, you know, like you and I, we can't. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, there, I know, I know you've can. read some. There yeah, are I know times you, we can. I know you've read some stuff out there. I know I've read some stuff out there and it, it wasn't happy birthday. You know, it was, <laughs> it, 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 if only. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. All right. Uh, well, what do you have coming up? Upset one plumber. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a golden gold update. I'm not talking about my man boobs. The Golden Globes are going on right now. Uh, my first year not there in a while, but I have an update. Lone Survivor, Jake Trapper got in trouble. We're going to talk about that since it's an entertainment kind of eating. And Bigfoot Bounty is on Spike TV, and I just happened to know someone that I, for 15 years. Yes, they have this. You get a million dollars if you can. So it's, just, it's, it's getting great ratings. And my friend Richter that I've had a friend for like 20 years, he's in it. So... We're going to talk about that. <laughs> We're going to have attorney Fred Sayag. He's going to be here about uh, MedPot from Project Hemcom, oh, the green economy, of course. Uh, Grammy-nominated Laura Sullivan's going to be here tonight. We're going to have the most with Mel Baker. Chris Breen with Tacos Tech. Roy, pass us with all my fame. You don't have enough time to do all no, that. No. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you better get In started. In fact, I'm just going to leave and let them all talk. Well, and, 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 and getting back to the Golden Globes, your man boobs, do you yeah. have a man's ear? A man's ear? No. Actually, what pro? I have is a dietitian. is what I have. <laughs> And you have us at KGO San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland. (laughs) There's an image for you. All right. There's Carell. He'll be coming up next. Stay tuned for that. I'm Pat Thurston. And let's see. I won't be with you through the week, but I will be back next weekend, Saturday from 4 to 7, Sunday 6 to 9. KGO San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland. It's 7 o'clock.